Well, at this time, I have the great pleasure to introduce our speaker for this morning. <clears throat> as you know, this year, as part of our Living Simply, Giving Generously uh, series, which is the third installment uh, in three years, we get to highlight particular organizations that we have <clears throat> chosen to, to uh, partner with. And today, we are going to be uh, highlighting Life Water International. And today, our speaker who will be representing that organization is Seda Andrews. And uh, she's been with the organization since 2007 as their director of communications and development. Um, besides being a director there, she's also a practicing uh, attorney. And so she has a heart for international human relations, and she will probably share some of that in her stories. A uh, little interesting facts. She uh, gives surfing lessons, I believe, on weekends. She's married to Matt and has a four-year-old son, and I guess they live down in a Tescadero, which is actually familiar to myself because my father was born down in that area. So without further ado, let's uh, welcome Seda to our church. I couldn't use that ear thing because I'd be too tempted to start dancing. Um, it happens. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting me here um, today to share God's word with you and to give a witness to what God is doing. Um, I'm here because, as Pastor Calvin said, I work with LifeWater, and that's an organization that CLC is supporting to help provide safe water and sanitation um, to, the, to those in need, especially to the rural poor in Africa and Asia. And we'll talk more about that later. But today I was asked to share with you a message from the Old Testament um, that works specifically with the issues you've been wrestling with over the past few weeks, namely money. And I've been blessed listening to sermons from the past few weeks from Pastor Andrew and Pastor Calvin, their messages about not worrying about money and about seeing money as an opportunity to do kingdom work. And I'm going to look at it from a slightly different angle today. Um, the angle that suggests that the way we acquire and use wealth and power are really opportunities for worship, to show God that we love him. I've um, been talking about love a lot this week. Friday was Valentine's Day, and I really hope this isn't the first time you're hearing that. Um, <laughs> this week, my son, we, it's a family-friendly office, and he visits me a lot at the office. And so one of my coworkers gave him three Hershey's Kisses. Um, because he said he wanted to give one to his dad and one to me, and he was going to keep one for himself. And he was so excited to be able to provide these treats for his family. Even when I put him in the car seat, he would not let them go. He's trying to balance them and get them through. Um, but to make a long story short, the kisses did not make it home. Um, they were eaten very quietly and very quickly in the back seat as we drove home together. And when I was trying later to help him understand how that might be disappointing for me, and maybe even elicit an apology, I asked him, you know, what do we do when someone is sad? And he paused for a second, and he replied with a phrase I've never heard before in my life. I don't know where he got it. He said, you fill up their love tank. And when I asked him, how, how do you fill up someone's love tank? He says, ah. <laughs> And it totally worked. I felt, I was happy. I felt loved. And today we're going to talk a lot more about love, about how we show God that we love him and how we love each other. In refreshing this message for this congregation, I was doing more studying this week, and I got totally energized by what I found in this passage in Amos. 
And I say energized because it's both very encouraging, but it's also very uncomfortable, especially for someone like me who was raised in the church. My dad's a pastor, and I've always attended to the traditions of religion. And I come from a relatively privileged background. I've never wondered where my next meal will come from. And I've always been surrounded by people who love me. But this passage in Amos is thick, and it's tempting to get into the weeds. And I'm going to go pretty fast today because there's a lot to cover. Um, And I don't want to keep you too long, but I'm actually just going to say the main point right now. So you can, you know, if you kind of come in and out, at least you'll get this. And I'll repeat it again at the end. And here it is. Ready? There is a God who loves you, who has found you and saved you. And when you learn to love him back, you will serve the people around you. So let's look at this passage in Amos. In Amos 5, we hear, starting in verse 21, Amos is, is prophesying in the sanctuary in Bethel. So when it says I, he's actually talking. It's, it's God talking. God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. The book of Amos is not a happy one. It is a series of announcements and judgments on Israel and Judah. There's not much comfort for Israel or Judah in the entire book. But we should note that the book of Amos concludes the end. God promises restoration. It is a book that ends with hope. God promises to repair Israel and bring them back from exile. In historical context, Amos was written at about 760 B.C. or B.C.E. And this was a time after Elijah and Elisha, after the division of Israel into the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, um, and, but Amos' Amos's prophecies came before um, the other minor prophets and even before Isaiah. And if you want to find exactly what was going on, it's in 2 Kings chapters 14 and 15. During the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel and Azariah or Uzziah in Judah. And both of these kings, kings came to power at about the same time and both reigned prosperously. In fact, under these two kings, the territory of Judah and Israel expanded almost to the size it was under David and Solomon. It was a time of peace and prosperity. The problem was, is that many of those enjoying that peace and prosperity considered it evidence of God's blessing on what they were doing and how they were living. But it wasn't. Within a generation, the peace and prosperity would end. Not long after Jeroboam II's death, the kingdom of Israel would cease to exist altogether. Cities would be destroyed, and Israel would be taken into captivity. They'd be in exile. The Bible says that Amos was a shepherd and a fig farmer from a small town in Judah. So he actually left his, his country and went to another one for this prophecy. He came into the king's sanctuary in Bethel in Israel and spoke these words. And before this, he was not a prophet. He didn't come from a family of prophets, and there, there was no famous Amos in the Bible. In fact, because Amos was a shepherd and a fig farmer, he probably didn't talk to many people at all. 
You may remember from the Christmas stories how interesting it was that God chose to tell the shepherds first about the birth of his son. And he used these scruffy, marginalized people as the first ones to share the good news with others. And it seems like the same kind of thing is happening here. These people listening to Amos, they definitely didn't see it coming. This guy comes out of nowhere. He's he's not even from their town. And he may or may not have cleaned up for the occasion. And he tells them that everything is, in fact, the opposite of what it seems. He says, your blessings have nothing to do with God and everything to do with your own corruption. Your extravagant religious ceremonies that you're really proud of are actually repulsive to God. And through Amos, as, as with other prophets, God says to his people, you have broken covenant with me. You have not done what I have asked. You, should, you, you have acted unjustly and unrighteously. You have oppressed the poor when you should have been defending them. Therefore, your religious observances seem empty to me. They are no substitute for justice. In this passage, we see that God has a love language, and it is how we treat each other. Um, A love language is how we show and recognize love. Um, The concept has been around for a while, and I've heard of it described as the five T's, okay? Time, treasure, task, touch, and talk, okay? So time being spending time with someone else, treasure, giving things of value to someone else, Um, task, doing things that are helpful for another person, practical help, Um, touch, just showing affection, physical affection, and what was the last one? Talk, right, saying kind things, um, and encouraging one another, okay? And there are more than these five, I'm sure, but 10 years of marriage has taught me how important it is to recognize your partner's love language and consider it throughout the day. For example, it took me a while to learn that when my husband was outside mowing the lawn, instead of inside, you know, enjoying a cup of tea and a nice, friendly conversation with me, that he wasn't saying, I find you uninteresting and I want to get away from you. He was actually saying, I love you. Okay? And when I bought him a new shirt, I wasn't saying, I hate your wardrobe, I think it's disgusting. I was saying, I love you and I want to give you something cool. Okay? It's very important. And to kind of further make the point, this week I endured the torturous anxiety and expectation that is a preschool Valentine party. My son is four, and he was born with a condition that renders him unable to use his legs, and he uses a wheelchair to get around. And so I'm always worried on his behalf how his peers will react to him or whether they'll accept him. Will they give him a valentine? Will he be devastated if he doesn't get one from the kid he really likes or admires? He, on the other hand, is totally oblivious to that. He, he doesn't see love the same way as I do yet. Um, he only counts up his candy. And he's not no, he doesn't even know who lovingly colored the card. I found myself sympathizing with this little girl who painstakingly colored in the heart. And if you knew this girl, you would know what a sacrifice it was for her to sit down and color this heart. She colored this heart and only to watch him toss it aside because there was no candy tape to it. Okay? Noting your loved one's love language is, inc- is incredibly useful to actually communicating I love you to someone. You might have several love languages, but in these passages, God shows us his love language. How he wants us to show him 
we love him. And he says what? He says, I hate your religious festivals. I'm not going to accept your offerings. And away with your songs. But, this is, here, this is where we listen, but let justice roll on like a mighty river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And this shows up in other passages in the Old Testament too. In Isaiah 58, God says, Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? We see it in Micah 6. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And in the coming weeks, you'll be studying from, from Matthew Um, And I encourage you to listen closely because Jesus is very specific about God's love language there. But the point is clear in Amos. God wants us to act justly and defend the vulnerable. He says to Israel, I don't care how many church services you put on or how much you put in the offering plate, and I won't listen to your songs. I have asked you to treat others fairly and generously, voluntarily limiting your own profit or gain, sacrificing some of the comfort you can afford. For the sake of others. Now, does God really hate it? Does God really hate our worship songs? You know, Gordon, this is, is this really uncomfortable for you? Does God really hate our, uh, when we sing for him? Does he hate it when we host a potluck? And that's so threatening to me. I am made of potlucks. And does God really say, I hate these things? And I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying. In this context, God is saying, if you are not acting justly and providing for the needs of others... You don't know me, and your religious noises and rituals don't make up for it. In other words, this is the worship I want. Get that right first, and then do these other things. If your spouse told you something they really wanted for their birthday, and instead you gave them something you wanted to give them, you may have noticed a look of disappointment on their face when they got the gift. This has happened to me. Not only did they not get the gift that they wanted, but they also now suspect that you weren't even listening when they told you, or that you don't take them seriously enough or trust their judgment. And it's similar with God's love language. So let's listen closely to the words that he chooses. Um, I need to confess at some point that I borrowed a lot of um, thoughts for this part from Tim Keller's book called Generous Justice. Tim Keller's a pastor of a, a giant church in Manhattan, and I recommend generous justice to you if you want to study more on the topic. But let's, let's look at these words. The Hebrew word that's translated in Amos 5 as justice is mishpat. It occurs over 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And the most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means judging every person on the merits of the case, regardless of social status. Equality before the law. Although it's more expansive than just publishing, than just punishing criminals in court, it also includes upholding the rights and the righteous claims of the people. Mishpat is giving people what they are due, whether it's punishment or protection. In the Old Testament, justice in a society, its mishpat, is found in how it treats its most vulnerable groups, the widows and the orphans, and the immigrants, and the poor, 
receive the most frequent mentions as the people whom God defends. God executes mishpat and instructs his people to do the same. Now, the Hebrew word in this passage that's translated as righteousness is zadekah. It's a word that I really like because it's, it's the same root from which my name, Seda, comes. Um, my dad was studying the languages of the Bible when I was born, and he chose this name for me, not knowing that eventually I would become a lawyer. And he says if he knew that that's how it worked, he would name me something closer to the Hebrew phrase for get rich and buy my dad a beach house. <laughs> but the word zadikah refers to the maintenance of right relationships being right with God, and therefore committed to being in right relationship with other people. It's how we live in our families and communities day to day. This is righteousness. Zadika is not referring to private morality. It's a social righteousness in treating others fairly and equitably and generously. Tim Keller says, quote, Though Zadika is primarily about being in right relationship with God, the righteous life that results is profoundly social. The words Zadokah and Mishpat are seen together dozens of times in the Bible, and often in parallel phrases like we see here. Sometimes Zadokah is translated or considered charity, but we think of charity often as optional, right? The Bible tells us that Zadokah, or social rightness, is always the pursuit of those who are seeking to be in a right relationship with God. While doing justice and serving others is not, it's not an item that we can check off on our list of things to do to be righteous. We're like, justice, check, righteousness, check. God describes it as a natural extension of our love for him. When we love God and we know him, we will help those in need. We don't need to be told to do it. God loves the poor, and loving God leads us to serve the poor. It's no secret that God loves the poor. Scripture is saturated with references of God's love for the poor. In fact, God chooses his love for the poor as one of his introductions. Before I got up here, Pastor Calvin said some nice things about me and just introduced me to you. And usually it's, it's normal to introduce someone with things that are important or relevant or impressive about a person. But here's how... God introduces himself in the Psalms. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families and leads out the prisoners with singing. It's so important to him that this is how he wants to be introduced, as a lover of the poor. But God didn't stop identifying with the poor in words. He came to us and became one of us. And he became poor and oppressed himself, didn't he? During his life, when Jesus was born in a stable, he was a refugee, and he knew hunger. And when we love God, we recognize the magnitude, and when we recognize the magnitude of the grace that we have received, we learn to understand and follow God's heart, which leads us straight to the poor. God's love for the poor and oppressed is both a reason to worship him and doing the same is a way that we worship him. When Mother Teresa started the Order of the Missionaries of Charity in Calcutta, she described their work as this, quote, Our object is to quench the thirst of Jesus Christ on the cross 
by dedicating ourselves freely to serve the poorest of the poor. According to the word and teaching of our Lord, thus announcing the kingdom in a special way. When God talks about the poor, he's simple and not complicated. And for those of us um, who've been in this work a long time, and the more we know about missions or justice or policy, it's really easy to become cynical, isn't it? But God doesn't split hairs. He doesn't say whether the poor are poor through their own poor decision-making or as the outcome of oppression. And he doesn't say that the poor will repay a good deed or change it all. He just says that we love him by being fair and providing for one another. And Tim Keller again, on judgment day, don't say to the Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, or captive? Because the answer is, on the cross. There is how far God was willing to go to identify with the oppressed of the world. And he was doing it all for us. There, Jesus, who deserved acquittal and freedom, got condemnation. So that we, who deserve condemnation for our sins, can receive acquittal. And this is the ultimate instance of God's identification with the poor. He not only became one of the actually poor and marginalized, he stood in the place of all of those in spiritual poverty and bankruptcy and paid our debt. I attended a conference a few weeks ago at which Mark Laberton, who's the the new president of Fuller Seminary down in Pasadena, he spoke about God's plans to use his people, to be his hands, to be his touch to the people around us. And he told the story of a friend whose granddaughter was born very prematurely, and she spent the first several weeks of her life in an incubator until her immune system was ready to encounter the germs around her. And the grandfather would visit, and he asked the nurse... What should I do? And here's, this is what she said. She said, put your hands through the incubator and rub her back gently and tell her you love her. Teach her to associate your voice and your touch. Friends, we are God's plan A to serve those around us. Are we doing a good job of being God's touch? Are we demonstrating a connection between God's voice, who he says he is, and his touch, our actions in the world? Are we faithfully representing to our neighbors a God who identifies himself as the defender of the poor and oppressed, as a God who forgives and sacrifices? Or are we doing something else? When we do justice and act righteously in our society, the benefit is not just for the poor. We are witnessing to all those who are watching about God's character. And they are watching. And the poor are watching. And God is watching. There is much at stake. And I don't say this to shock or to scare you, but I think this component of our faith, both as the church, the church universal, And as individuals, we often overlook this component of our worship, or at least we don't give it the diligence that we give other things. God has chosen us not only to demonstrate his love and concern for the poor, he's chosen to demonstrate this for the benefit of all who do not know him. And God uses the metaphor of of rivers and flowing streams here when he talks about justice and righteousness. 
And these things are powerful, and they are uninterrupted, and they are earth-changing. They literally move the earth around them. And I follow this metaphor a little bit further, and at some point it breaks down, but bear with me here. So I'm thinking about, okay, rivers and streams, where do they start? Right? They start usually high up in the mountains with, with snow melt, right? And so God sends this, this snow to kind of the blanket at the tops of these mountains, and, and it melts and, and forms these streams and then these, these wide rivers, right? I think of this snow as God's grace for us which when melted and changed, moves and becomes a force of its own to change and shape its surroundings. This is much like the work of grace and justice. God's grace for us should turn to our justice. And it's just like, and it's just like snow and liquid water are, are both the same compound, right? H2O, just different forms of it. So grace and justice are characteristics of the same God who loves us and moves among us. So what now? What do we do practically to do justice and righteousness in our society? And I need to share at this point that I think intelligent, God-fearing, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians can and do disagree about how God's instruction for the Hebrews about justice and righteousness should be applied in our society today, specifically the role of the state in achieving this. There, there's disagreement among churches. There's, even, there's disagreement in my own family about this. Um, but we choose to believe the best of one another. In fact, I think Christians are uniquely equipped to debate and seek God's will on this issue. And it's my prayer that we can teach our neighbors to disagree in a manner that demonstrates God's love and grace. But don't make this debate an excuse to do nothing. To sit on the sidelines until it's settled. It may not be settled in my lifetime. And it might change. But God has required that we act justly and righteously now. It's an instruction for each of us individually as much as it is for our community and our nation. Mishpat and Zadokah must permeate every corner of our lives. In this passage in Amos, God is not talking only about money, but money is certainly included in the concept of justice and righteousness. We may be able to think that we can check off again, justice, check, righteousness, check, once we've made our tithe or we've given a certain percentage away um, to charity. But God is concerned about how we use all of our money, all of our resources, how we spend the other 90% too. Um, all of this falls under the lordship of God. How we use the resources he gives us, our money, our voice, our love on behalf of the poor, oppressed, and vulnerable is a way for us to demonstrate that we love him enough to know him and love what he loves, to worship in in a way that he's asked us to worship him. Ultimately, how God calls you to act justly in your own life depends on whether that channel for communication is open. In other words, pray. Pray God would share his heart with you, give you eyes to see others as he sees them. Pray God would show you the opportunities and equip you to stick up for someone who has no defense, to speak for someone who has no voice. Listen to God's voice and be his touch in others' lives. Pray. 
So here it is again. I told you, I tell you the point, right? There is a God who loves you, who has found you and saved you. And when you learn to love him back, you will serve the people around you. I'm here today to give a testimony to what God is doing through some of his people whose call to do justice has led us to a fight against a villain that is robbing children of their future. And this is waterborne disease. Over 780 million people still do not have access to safe water, and over 2.5 billion don't have adequate sanitation. It is a fact that more people have cell phones in the world than have toilets. Waterborne disease, preventable waterborne disease, kills more children under five than malaria, measles, and AIDS combined. It is the equivalent of each day, seven, four 747s full of children crashing from something we know how to stop. We, we call this injustice. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever lived without safe water. Perhaps some of you have. And you would know then how it stunts growth, how it keeps kids out of school, how it puts women and children in danger of assault, how it inhibits economic activity, how it makes people live without dignity, and how it stands in the way of what God has created them to be. We can do all kinds of things to help people out of extreme poverty. We can build schools, we can build clinics, we can enable entrepreneurs with small loans. But the results of these efforts are short-lived if we can't keep people from getting sick, if we can't get them safe water and sanitation. This is the foundational work of ending poverty. So I have a video for you today, and we're going to listen to one man's story about he ans- how he answered this call. He heard Jesus call him to serve the poor, and he's our founder, Bill Ash. He, w- he owned a pump company down in Los Angeles in the, in the 60s. He recruited a couple friends to come with him and to go down to an orphanage and, uh, and help get water for the kids there. So let's watch this quick video. It's hard for us to uh, comprehend the difficulties that people face that have to live with diarrhea from waterborne diseases all their lives. There's a child that dies every 20 seconds from waterborne diseases. And these are preventable diseases. So the urgency of addressing that problem by the mechanized and industrial world is important because they can accomplish it with simple strategies. So helping the rural poor develop safe drinking water supplies is a worthy cause. On the second or third trip, that I was able to take down there to see the deplorable conditions. One of the missionaries came with us and we stayed with the kids back in San Carlos Canyon, back about 15 miles down a dirt road with 
all the potholes and so on. And there was a, about 15 or 20 kids all the way from two-year-olds to seven or eight. And they had this big cement floor, and that's where everybody slept. But I remember sleeping on the cement floor in that orphanage and, uh, you know, all the night sounds. And, and I, of course, didn't sleep very well because that wasn't a usual thing for me. But I got a taste of what they were enduring daily. And uh, it, was, um, it was an experience. At that point, they were drinking the water from a um, open well that somebody had drilled and cased up in, um, it was about a 15-foot deep well. And of course, the bricks were all evident that water was seeping in from the surface, and so we just knew it was contaminated. It was, it was difficult to see that. Well, one of the most profound statements that he made was, since you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And there is a profound truth to that, that as a volunteer or as a worker, when you are in the rural areas helping the poor, there is a sense of Jesus' presence in accomplishing these things and the joy that you see in the faces of those that you're helping. There is a, a uniqueness to that that's hard to describe, but it's true about how Jesus is there and his presence makes a difference in the way it's received and in the way that it's, um, the way that it lasts and what it does in the community. It becomes more than just safe drinking water for a few people. It becomes a miracle in the community. And it has a spiritual impact that you don't fully grasp. My first trip, we went to start the programs and the second trip was three or four years later, and um, the same lady, uh, and I can't remember now whether I recognized her as the same lady or not, but she recognized me and said, uh, the, the babies don't die anymore. Boy, that was a powerful thing. The babies don't die anymore. So, you know, that makes it worth bringing safe water and, and expending a few dollars on it. Addressing a physical need along with proving that people really care, just like Jesus did. He would meet physical needs before he healed somebody or whatever. It says in the scripture, he healed all manner of disease that came to him. So he was compassionate upon the people who were in distress. And that's, I think, what the Life Water Ministry has unique is 
It shows that we care, that we really care what their plight is in having waterborne diseases as a natural thing all their lives. And so bringing the strategies that help them learn how to provide for themselves safe drinking water in their communities is a very powerful gift with spiritual impact to show that Christians really care. For over 35 years, LifeWater has helped from the, just remember this, this guy, Bill, owned a pump shop and he took a couple of friends down to Mexico. Over the past few decades, LifeWater has helped over 2.3 million people in over 40 countries get safe water. Today we are working to provide water, sanitation, and hygiene for people for life. We measure the effectiveness and we ensure the long-term sustainability of our efforts. And our goal is ambitious, to end preventable waterborne disease in our generation. LifeWater is working in hard places. We go where it is difficult, remote, forgotten, and sometimes dangerous, in order that the thirsty would receive safe water and that sickness in these communities would end so that the living water of Christ can be shared where it had not been known or experienced before. And you've heard this from others, but count me among the witnesses. God is moving amongst the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. If you want to experience God more fully, get involved in what he's doing. If you want God to bless what you're doing, find out what he's doing and join in. And as you partner with us at LifeWater, you are getting involved with the displaced peoples in Cambodia, providing water close to home, eradicating waterborne disease, and keeping children safe from the risk of fetching water through fields still littered with landmines. You can keep going through the slides. You are involved with what God is doing in Ethiopia bringing witnesses to those suffering from drought and preaching Christ's love for all people, including the significant Muslim population there. You are involved with what God is doing in Uganda among the orphans and widows who this month are getting safe water for the first time so that the women and girls are released from the burden and danger of traveling long distances for safe water, robbing them of the time for education, economic engagement, and family. Okay. Maybe like two more. And you are involved where God is equipping well-drillers to be preachers and prophets in their own communities. Okay, one more. 
these well drillers witness to the communities in which they serve in a contextually appropriate manner. And they stay there, and they keep witnessing, and they go back, and they build churches. And these well drillers who've now helped people get safe water tell those with newfound health that God loves them and values them and wants to give them life in abundance. Friends, brothers and sisters, God is moving in every corner of the earth. His justice is flowing on like a mighty river and his righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And my prayer for you today is that you would dive in, that you would make this true for your own lives, that you would make this your worship, and that it would carry you where he is leading you. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for involving us in your work. God, thank you for the privilege of being your hands. God, thank you. Thank you that you are gracious and that you are just and that you are generous with us. And God, help us, strengthen us, give us the courage to worship you by doing the same. In Jesus' name. Amen.